0: Hello and welcome or welcome back. I'm James Skiffins
1: and I am Malcolm Childs and you are listening to Just
0: Making Conversation. From gold grey to polyvinyl acetate we are going to Just Make Conversation. Do you get that? I, I, I didn't find a funny bit of it but why is it funny? Gold grey and yeah, PVA? Um,
1: okay. I, I work hard on these. <laughs> 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 well remember there are way better podcasts than this one that you can listen to plastic model mojo Our model podcast plastic posse podcast uh, on the bench model geeks the Cutters Spook- union small subjects built sideways Model by Carpoden. hoden micro machines podcast m show podcast and modeling and sanity podcast just go to modelpodcasts.com for all of the links Leave a five-star review somewhere for you? (laughs)
0: What? Why did you do that? I hadn't
1: finished it. Do you need me to write your
0: script for you? It would save me climbing into your brain to figure out what it was you were writing. (laughs) There you go. If you enjoyed this episode, you can show your support in two ways. Leave a five-star review somewhere useful, or contribute with coins. Visit paypal.me forward slash podcastjmc for a one-time donation. Or you could even check out our patreon.com forward slash justmakingconversation. It's as easy as pineapple jelly.
1: We are going to be just making conversation with Bill Huffman from the YouTube channel Scale Model Craft.
0: Bill has one of the most coveted workshops I've seen.
1: Let's find out who he is, what flavour modelling fuel he uses, and what type of biscuits he likes.
0: If you like to see happy folk in happy places, check out Bill's channel.
1: What does it take to release content on time recurring over the years? How do you fit in live shows, YouTube videos, and actually building things for yourself? I've got my canopies right here. And I've got a big dent. Very nice. See on the back. And I was told to fix your canopy, you get some gloss, and you stick it on top. And uh, I've I had it sat there for a while on the shelf. And nothing's happened yet.
2: It hasn't helped that dent.
1: Not one bit, not a, uh, a useful skill, but I've had that. I have that on my shelf all the time, just for that little canopy joke.
2: Oh, uh, oh, uh, it's good. <laughs> yeah. You know, when I was in the military, I, I, I jumped out of perfectly good airplanes. One of the calls out was check canopy. And <laughs> and of course, we would all say check can of peas <laughs> just to mess with our, our NCOAC. So, oh
1: man,
0: someone came up with a joke before me. <laughs> so
2: the canopy is, uh, is is a very familiar and welcome sideline.
0: When you were jumping out of these perfectly good airplanes, did you all throw up canopies at him so he could check your canopies as you left?
2: You know, nobody ever brought the canopies on board because, you know, at that time you were haul all this stuff about. So we weren't we weren't all uh, interested in bringing extra things. But, yeah, there was a lot of that kind of thing in the military, as you as you probably aware. You couldn't walk five feet down the hallway without being accosted with some kind of, you know, quip or joke or something. It was it was a very, very high stressful environment. So there was a lot Mm. there was a lot of comedy involved. I'm sorry I called you Mike on the email the other day. That's okay. I get called all kinds of things.
0: Oh, well, it could be worse. (laughs) Absolutely. It's really funny. I I didn't get involved in the conversation you two had about it, but I saw the email and went, Mike, now who's Mike? Damn it. And I was fumming through my calendar to try and figure out who Mike was because maybe I'd missed something. Yeah. Well, I was thinking, who is Mike? I don't know who Mike.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I had this vision of you... Uh, scrambling through booking and and getting folks for the show and and waiting on Mike to get back to you and I'm like, oh no, Mike doesn't know the message came through.
1: <laughs>
2: You're sitting here waiting for
1: Mike when you pop up. It's like, oh, Bill, what are you doing here? <laughs> right. Yeah,
2: exactly. We need a Mike.
1: Yeah, everything gets mixed up, but yeah, I'm glad we're here now and we're recording.
2: Indeed. So whereabouts are you in the world, then, Bill? So I live just outside of Seattle, Washington. And have lived here pretty much all my life. And how long have you been model making for? Uh, like like many folks, I think I, I started early on as a child. You know, my earliest memories of, of uh, playing were with models. I didn't model with my father like a, a lot of folks talk about. I actually modeled with my brother. So my brother and I would model uh, on the carpet as kids with tester's paints and tube glue and, you know that that good mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, so probably a good uh oh gosh, 50 plus years. Wow.
1: I'm still learning.
2: Absolutely. And and that's a big big mantra of mine. You know, learn something from everyone that you meet. I used to have that saying and then I heard Bill Nye say it in it and it, it kind of ticked me off because I'd been saying it for 20 years. Uh <laughs> the the dumbest person I know knows something useful to me that I mm-hmm. don't. Wow. And it was just something I picked up in the military just kind of helped me be a little bit more humble and and listen more than talk.
1: Yeah, I'm always telling people to listen more, which is ironic because because you're telling them to listen while while they're listening to you, telling them that. (laughs) We're not taught to listen. We're taught to speak. We're taught to be confident, talk with confidence, be eloquent. We're not taught to just shut up and listen to somebody, you know, and really taking what people are saying. I think mm-hmm. That's very,
0: very important, especially these days. We can see you sat in your your small hobby zone um, or in part of your small hobby zone. Why don't you tell us about where it is you do your, your pleasurable stuff?
2: Um, well, we're fortunate enough to have built a freestanding shop in 2012. And it's a, a 20 by 32 foot shop. Wow. It's about 746, 750 uh, square feet and that's that's where i really exist that is my shop and it was at the time i built it my primary focus uh-huh. was woodworking because i've also been a woodworker for 30 years uh, i've been building models longer but but woodworking became a very very strong passion whilst i worked and so my shop is both a woodworking shop and model building and diorama building oh.
1: I've seen some of those things on your channel, mm-hmm. woodworking.
2: Yeah, the woodworking was something that when we bought our first home in 97, I bought a table saw, put that in the half of the garage and claimed half of our two-car garage as shop. And so it was that way for 17 years. You know, it it just became something that I had a place to go do something. I had no idea what, because I wasn't an accomplished woodworker or anything like that. I I, I discovered woodworking Uh at that time. And and so I had a place to do things. I would just dive right into it, learning, and, and just thoroughly enjoyed it. But as I got older, after building the shop and all that kind of stuff, I found that some old military injuries, back and knees, were really starting to affect my ability to work with wood. I built my whole life about, you know, going into this woodworking thing and I, and I really couldn't do it. And then I rediscovered model building because I would build a model, you know, couple a year. It was not a, a primary activity like a lot of my friends these days where modeling is the primary focus of all of their free time. I had always loved building models, but never proficient at it. When I, when I got back, you know, more heavily into it, I guess you could say I was still using testers glue and, mm. and tube glue. Um, And that's about seven years ago. Right. You know, I just, and I'd never done a diorama up until that point, wow. getting back into it. I found that I could do a diorama. Once I, I watched Andy's hobby headquarters and I I put it to one specific event that got me back into diorama or or got me into dioramas I should say, and that is Andy's Hobby Headquarters video uh-huh. about doing groundwork with sanded grout.
1: Oh, okay. um,
2: that was a very very distinct and seminal moment in my building dioramas and, and models and, and my interest in dioramas. It did the one thing that I could never do, which was which was capture what the ground looked right. like. Right, I see. A believable groundscape, a a believable base to to basically start Uh everything from. And and so when that happened, I dove headlong into it. I I found that I could do that and and realize some of the things that I always wanted to do and shifted from my woodworking just completely to to dioramas. And today, I don't build a model without the intention of building a diorama a model to me is a component of a diorama it is a part it is a subassembly it is yeah. a focus point mm. i love models and 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 i want to build that particular model you know i just like wow you see it and i want to do mm. that but it's really more about to give that model a story i really love that so that kind of took the shop in that direction what? And so everything now in, in my shop is focused toward that. I do still build some things because I love woodworking and I will build a display or I'll build a stand or I'll build yeah. something to, to go with it because I do like the aesthetic of, of having, you know, like the old museums oh. and the the classic museums with the wood and glass cases and stuff. I just, I really love that.
1: Yeah. That's one of the things that I noticed in, Looking at your thumbnails of your dioramas yeah. and things, all your all your bases are prominent and well made and tactile enough that they they are nice as as a piece of wood as a piece of work. Yeah, so you have a nice base, and then you have your story on top. So you have a, a nice place for the book, if you like, you know, like a pedestal.
2: I I just thought that you're you're spending so much time with your model. And, and I really honestly get sad when someone tells me that they're going to now put it in a box and, you know, stuff it away in a closet mm-hmm. somewhere. You know, you've created something that's beautiful and you want to show it to your friends and your family and and possibly go to shows mm-hmm. and things like that. Certainly you want to yeah. preserve it. And if you don't have it in a case, if you don't have it in some kind of protective element, it, it could get damaged. So it was just a natural thing to me, but also if I build something, mm-hmm. I want to look at it. I'm not a person that will build 27 models a year. I'm a person that might build two. Uh-huh. You know, each one is a diorama, so it's quite detailed and it uh-huh. takes me that long. Does it matter to you how long it takes? No, oh. it doesn't. It really doesn't. Um, I've tried to speed it up, but I think that I don't go in with an overall plan. I have an idea uh-huh. and and I have a scope I I have what I'd like to accomplish vaguely in my mind, but I don't do CAD, I don't draw it, I don't plan it out, I don't meticulously buy this, that, and everything that I'll need for the diorama. It's very much I have an idea. I don't want to sound too froofy, but I kind of just explore it as uh. I go into it. I think I'm a very reactive person. So when I'm building a diorama, I'll get like the main vehicle or the main focus, which is typically a, a an aircraft or a tank or a vehicle, something like that, and I'll build it and I'll get it to the built and prime stage and then I'll stop. And then once I've got that and I can see the form of it and I can see its shape, then I'll start the diorama oh. base. And then I'll typically go through and build the entire diorama before I go back and paint that first vehicle that I built for the diorama.
0: I think with with diorama building especially, that's a a good good approach. Listening to you, I'm thinking to myself about ones that I've done. Putting it down on paper, sometimes is just not practical. For me, translating what's in my head onto a piece of paper is all but impossible most of the time. Yeah. I've never really thought about it, about being free in your expression. But interestingly, you were saying that you get to the prime stage. Now, I'm assuming from what you're saying, that that's because you're not 100% sure of what that is actually going to be within the diorama at that point. So you don't know the weathering. You don't know how it's going to look per se. Uh, have I got that right?
2: Yeah, very much so. Exactly. You, you've you nailed it. It's it's really a point of trying to make everything look like it should be mm. there. You know, I want that vehicle or the figure or, or something that I scratch build. I want it to fit within the scene very well. I don't want it to look out of place. I don't want it to necessarily stand out. I mean, there may be a point in which I say, look, I want to bring your focus to a certain point. So we'll do something to get that to happen. But overall, I want everything to be this homogenous thing. I don't want to say, well, there's a nice tank or there's a nice aircraft, but it doesn't really fit the scene. And and, and I think I I spend a lot of time trying to make that happen. And it really helps by not painting it and not having this completed model that I have to be so careful with. Gosh, I can bash it around. I can say, hey, what if I'm gonna have this thing wrecked? I can, I can do whatever I want with the model. And then once I've got in my mind where we're going, mm. then I can add the model back to it and then paint it into the scene because I want the, the dust, the timeline, everything to match the scenery that I've, that I've placed it in.
0: It's, it's interesting because I'm I'm wondering, gone off on a tangent in my head, but I'm just wondering when, when someone paints a painting, do they start with the scenery or do they start with the main subject? I, I'm not sure. That's a really good point. I'm not sure.
2: Yeah. And I'm not a painter, so I I, I don't know. I've done some painting and I've always been into art and, and things like that. And I think a lot of people in our hobby have that background. You know, they had some art classes and stuff like that because some of the painting that I see, on on a lot of the the things online and things like that, and and, and it shows, it's just remarkable painting, uh, absolutely stunning painting. So I think there's uh, a lot of that artistic thing in our hobby, and trying to realize it, I think, is just the 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 hitch people get on. You know, they're not sure how to blend a color because you're thinking, well, I was painting a face, now I'm trying to figure out what the color in this in this time of day is going to be on a fender on a tank. Well, that's a lot different than a face. You know, uh, you right. can see a face and you're always looking at it and you always have that kind of thing in your mind. You know, you've got these embedded impressions. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's kind of how I look at it is get the scenery right and then bring everything into it to make the whole thing one.
0: Mm-hmm. So talking about light within your dioramas, um, not not the physical bulb, but at what point in that, creative moment do you decide which way the light's coming into a diorama or do you just allow natural light to do its thing
2: i i i started doing underground after seeing the gentleman from australia and he's quite oh my goodness uh, now i can't remember his name it's one gosh darn it um but he does um absolutely amazing dioramas and he did one and it was a mine and he did lighting in it. And I'd never done lighting up up to that point. And I saw that it was quite simple. And the other thing that struck me about it and is exactly what you're saying is how is the light affecting the scene? And, and I think that's a real big key to it. Lighting, I think, mm. has become hugely important to what I do and probably drives the methods that I choose to take in, in building. I do rooms so I can capture the light. I understand where the light comes in, but I add light to enhance the room itself. And you can do it with the color of light, the temperature of light. You can do it with the brightness of the light. You can do it with its placement, where it's shining. All of these things are so important. My dioramas are are a little bit more vertical. A lot of underground elements And because of these underground elements, I'm able to go in and control the view, kind of like a box diorama. And because I have control of their view, I also have control of the light placement and show them what I want them to actually see. And that's something I didn't think of initially, but it just, I noticed it and I'm like, well, there you go. That works wonderfully. In putting in lighting, I will, uh, on the larger dioramas that I do, I will do three to four rounds of lighting. So I'll go in and I'll light the diorama and then I'll come back, see how it turns out, see what I can see and then make adjustments to it. And I've gone into certain areas of my dioramas and and gone into one room three times to try to get the lighting proper and and continuously adding light, sometimes even replacing light, but that's, that's a little bit more rare. It's typically... I've gotten to the point where I know where I need to start and and that I can make adjustments along the way. Mm.
0: Mm, that's interesting.
1: So when you're putting your lights in then, do you play with whereabouts they're going to be?
2: Yeah, because I, I like these dioramas to have rooms and passageways and things like that. and And yeah. sometimes that can be a little bit weird as to how it's available or how it's opened up to regular light. So the regular light can only come in so far. So what I did was I created just a little LED on the end of a long lead and then just a battery. And so what I'll do is I'll take that LED and before I've got lighting in the diorama, I'll take that and move it around the scene and see where the shadows are cast, what things are highlighted, the direction, sometimes the temperature of the light, the color of the light, and when you get into lighting, you also have to think about what is the color of the light going to do the color of the paint that you're using. It's fun hmm. to get into. It's a little bit frustrating at first because you you go in and you build this in beautiful scene and you're thinking, this is great. And when I light it, everybody's going to be a seabit. <laughs> then you put the lighting in and you step back and you can't see any of the colors that you put in. Or some of the things are are blown out just because of the brightness of the light. So then I have to go back in and adjust those colors. It's almost like like highlight colors that are way too overdone. Sometimes I have to do that, or else you just can't see it once it's in this room and the particular lighting is on it. it It does take quite a bit. You know, you asked earlier, did you know, does it take do you care how long it takes? takes the amount of time to get what i want done and you know i have worked on a on a diorama for 18 months
0: because you've got that freedom and flexibility because you haven't put it down on paper it it allows you to invent what you are achieving because your brain is moving on a little bit further with that picture one thing i found certainly is that the idea that i had initially in my head isn't necessarily what the end piece is because other things come up and you're like oh i could just tweak that a little bit or add that little bit that will tell the story a little bit more um etc cetera, etc cetera. and i mean lighting is something that fascinates me greatly especially when you're you're looking at pieces that are i uh, just paint there's no physical light it's just the way it's all painted, et cetera.
2: Right. Yeah.
0: That scares the bejesus out of me. i got to be honest. Oh, There's a word for that, isn't there in painting?
2: OSL object source lighting. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's always been something in which I've tried to make sure with all the dioramas I've done that the natural light for me works because what I found is when you take a diorama somewhere, it's not going to be the same as where you're sat in your shop or on your bench or whatever. So, um, so certainly something I learned was every now and again, take it outside, sit it in the garden, and just have a cup of coffee and look at it mm-hmm. and think about it. And because then that gives you a little bit more of a understanding of what that piece is going to look like when it goes to a show. Yeah. We've talked about that before, haven't we?
1: When, when where wherever you're going to put the, the diorama in a show, you think about the terrible led lighting they're going to give it. Is it worth building it in, in your studio with the lighting you have and worrying about the contrast and the hues and everything. If you're going to be showing it somewhere
2: else. Yeah. It's a, it's a little bit better. I think because I do things and control the light sources because I do little rooms and, and little things like that. Mm. But, you know, even playing, I did a, uh, in, in one of my recent ones I did last year, uh Wolfenstein, that one had a camouflage canopy on it because it had, you know, all the the uh, uh, camouflage netting and, and stuff like that in it. It was really important that I had a top down light on the diorama because that uh-huh. top down light helped the uh, help the, the kind of the viewing of the the top of the diorama that didn't have any lighting. There's virtually no lighting in the top of the diorama because it's just like a top of a diorama or like a display. Well, by putting that there, Hmm. I was able to control regular light and how it plays off in the shadows on my diorama as well. So I didn't, there I used shadows to get the effect that I wanted instead of lighting to get the effect I wanted. Oh, nice. And because, you know, when I I also got into photography when I I started doing my dioramas more, you know, that's all light and dark. You're just playing with shadows and, and light. And when I came to that realization, that was kind of the same time I was doing my lighting for my dioramas. Photography and and, and how you set up a photography shoot and where your lights are, that really gave me a, a pretty good grounding. To get the best effect out of your light, just putting a light straight in front of a subject is Fine, it lights the subject, but putting it off to the side, then cast shadows across the face or playing with the light and the shadows in my dioramas has become a very, very enjoyable experience. Something that I never planned for, I'm thinking of not necessarily where the light's going to go, but what the shadow is going to be cast by where the light's going to go. And that really makes a big, big difference.
1: You think about lighting, it's a whole discipline in theater. You know, lighting. A stage yes. and lighting it to create drama yeah. and for it to follow the story, yes, like a music score yeah. would accentuate the story. The lighting can do the same. So you've almost got like another color to paint with.
2: You know, in 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 speaking about like special effects and movie making and stage and lighting and stuff like that. So I buy DVDs and I will watch the movie a lot, uh-huh. but I watch the the making of magnitudes more than I'll watch the actual movie. Mostly it's the production elements that they use to bring the story to fruition. The the, the whole thing from when they're doing their storyboard, uh, stage design, lighting, composition, all of those things really go into your diorama. You don't maybe think about them. You know, you're just trying to get your tank to look the best or you're trying to get your aircraft with the guys to look really interesting and stuff like that. But if you really start getting into it and and, and you start adding lighting and stuff like that, then you're starting to tell a story. You're not showing off a vehicle. You're not showing your build prowess. You're telling a story. And the reason that I wanted to tell a story was because as a kid, boy, this guy would do this and my tank is better than yours or this car can be, you know, you're playing with them. Well, Uh I'm just playing with my models as an adult. And I'm trying to give them those little scenarios that we talked about as kids And now I can do it. And and that makes it very enjoyable. So looking at it almost like a movie, almost like a set, maybe even like a play where, you know, the, the scene is static, but the characters, you can imagine the characters moving around in the scene, I think gives you a lot better idea what's possible in the scene in your diorama i think it's important that you don't just have a room or or a scene in your diorama and there's just a bunch of stuff in there yeah can people move around in there you know you have to think of of, of being in that scene i think of myself at 35th scale because that's primarily my my scale i think of me walking around in that room i've got to perform this task and as i'm performing this task what do i need and if it's not there I build it
0: Are you more focused on making sure that the viewer gets to see what you're seeing or are your dioramas dependent on the person's perception?
2: I, I, I try to tell a specific story. I have in my mind a story that I'm putting together. And, and the feeling is that if if that story is strong enough and, and, and I do it well enough that, that somebody can perceive that story just by looking at the diorama without any kind of prompting, without anything, if, Somebody has a different interpretation of the story. I think that's wonderful as an artist. And I don't consider myself an artist. I'm a craftsperson like most people that build are. You're communicating with the viewer, but you're not there. Leonardo, 550 years ago, he he painted the Mona Lisa, but everybody that looks at it has an interpretation and you're communicating to them and they're pulling from that painting what they want. In some way, Leonardo is still communicating with that person that's viewing it 550 years later. Yeah. You know, I've got a story that I'm putting into this. I may not be there when you view it, but if you get a story out of it, then then I've done my job. Whatever that story is, huh. I hope it's the one that, that I put through because I have an idea that I want to get across. But if they come up with their own story, that's wonderful because then I'm like, wow, I didn't see that.
1: As long as it's, you know, along the same sort of lines than you were...
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I was not trying to kill all those people. That's not... What
1: the people <laughs> yeah, there's no space people in this. I don't know what you're talking about.
2: No! You know, those are not aliens.
1: I guess you are an artist. If you're communicating emotion and that's coming across, I think that is what art is. Mm.
2: You know, building a little scene like that is for naught if someone doesn't pull something mm. from it. You know, the, the initial idea of doing a detailed diorama was to get people to look at the model. And I used to to talk about this quite a bit. So if you have your model and it's sitting there on the table and there's no display, no nothing, Uh it's just your model. And there are 45 other models of the same ilk. Then how are you going to draw someone's eye to your model? Well, The first way, I think, to make someone do that is to add just a figure, add like a flag or something different to that. And that's going to draw the eye. The second way would do a a display base that enhances the model. And then you go beyond that and then you build a story. And and so that's kind of where I evolved into it. I wanted people to look at my stuff at a show, whether competition or non-competition. I just wanted to see it because I put all this work into it. And so I wanted to make it interesting enough for the number one, they're going to stop and look, but number two, when they're looking, there should be some uh-huh. reward, you know, Hey, this is kind of neat. And I never thought of that. So that's kind of how I think of it. If if they can get what I, I meant. Perfect. If not, they can, they can take for it what they want, but I want them to see it. And I think that my dioramas definitely get seen uh-huh. instead of just passing by this myriad of 45 of uh-huh. whatever,
1: we interviewed Kathy Millett at the very start of this third season. And she was saying that when she went to scale model world, she saw rows and rows and rows and rows of tanks, 45 tanks on one table. While that's wonderful, she said, that they all just blend into one big model. Yeah, You don't see the individual artists, you don't see the individual craftsmen, you don't see each individual tank. And she felt sad that they weren't being displayed in their natural habitat, let's say. hmm But then saying that when we went to scale model world, the dioramas, Mm. their display was all quite packed in. Yeah. And and it's only the large ones that really stand out in my mind, the ones that were higher or the ones that had tall trees in the background or the ones that are larger scales. I wonder if there's always a consideration for who else is going to be displayed around you. Yeah. You know, you don't have the table to yourself. So if you are at a show, if you're at a competition, you can't control that space around you. So you only have to control over the space that you made.
2: I started making display stands to make them stand higher for a specific reason. <laughs> but the other reason ties right into what you're saying because it becomes the tallest thing on the table. And that was not my intention. The, the issue was when I built my dioramas, because I've got a room in it, you've kind of got to get down to look into it whereas you know display you can just look down at it it's a bird's eye view or whatever i had a lot of older gentlemen and ladies in our model club that were coming up and and bending down <laughs> to see into my dioramas and i'm like man you know i'm going to help them back up cuz i'm i've got bad knees i know what it's like <laughs> Maybe the better way here is I just build a riser under my diorama so that they can see in it. Well, that's become almost a signature at this point because I do that with my dioramas. So you can see in them. So you don't have to bend down. Mm. But it makes them quite tall. You know, they look like a lighthouse. Does that mean you could have multiple levels? Then? Yeah, I typically have two to three levels in my dioramas these days. There's typically a surface and then one subterranean, if not two subterranean, possibly even three. I really like to have those
1: subterranean levels. Is that a style choice, or is it do you just find it fascinating?
2: I think it's fascinating, but I also think it allows me to do what I I want to do, which is control the light and control the scene and and, and control where people are seeing. Okay. It also maybe there's a. A comfort in that, in mm. the fact that you know I'm creating a small room, a little cubby, a little space uh, that I can exist in, that I can be inside. There's a, a security to being in that little room. Uh, as a kid, I think we all made pillow fort. You know, you stretch it something across yeah. a couple of chairs and the couch, and 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 there's your fort. It's the same thing when I'm working inside these things. I think it's neat to be in there.
1: Well, as adults, we make our little sheds. We go workshops. That's not vastly different, is it?
2: Yeah, you know, I feel comfortable in my shop. I feel comfortable in my office, and I feel comfortable in the diorama that I'm building. I think it feels like a secure place, and 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 I don't mind being in there for a longer time. I don't know what part of or element that is, but I don't mind. And 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 I see that people that look at the dioramas do the same thing uh-huh. they don't mind spending more time looking at it what what mechanism involved there is i don't know but um if you're walking on taking a walk in the woods and you see a uh-huh. hole on the side of a bank you go and you look in it yeah. uh-huh. you're know, like what's in there it's just this curiosity i think that this natural thing and, and maybe i'm able to play on that a little bit have you heard of book nooks yeah and I love the book nook thing, you know, and you see a bunch of different ones now. There's even kits you can buy to do them. And 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 I love that. I've not done one yet, but I, I think those are lovely.
0: Well, when you're looking into a small space, I think that becomes the point where it's like, well, like, I want to be know you want to know what's in there. And I've got to make sure I don't miss what's there. What's in the corner? What's that doing? What's this doing? And I think that's just a, an element of humanity, which is just natural. That's a really good point. Yeah curiosity curiosity yeah
1: what's he got going on over there you can have a diorama with a with a garden fence right at the front
2: <laughs> that's fantastic i, I like that. that i
1: love that idea. yeah, yeah. Let's pick up the top that'd be very high there wouldn't it for you yeah it would be <laughs>
0: What's out there that you've seen recently that has made you think? Oh, actually, I wouldn't mind trying that, or that's something in which I'd like to incorporate into a diorama.
2: Boy, there's just so much. Um, <laughs> it, I mean, that's the thing. You know, you get on these groups these days, and there's so much beautiful building out there, and and so many just remarkable painters mm. out there. There is a gentleman from the from Eastern Europe, and I don't know what country he lives in. It might be Czech Republic. And he does archaeological sites. Mm -hmm. He will do a diorama of a baron. There's not really there's people not in it. It's it's just like here's the 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 archaeological site. Mm -hmm. I I love that. I'm a huge Indiana Jones fan from from a child, you know, the Raiders of Lost Ark. I, I saw that and uh you know i think that set set in the mind of of many people in my generation mm-hmm. that um you know that's that's a great adventure you know figure yeah. um, i can see
1: that down there in the, yeah, in the corner bill
2: exactly so i've got my indiana jones right over there uh, a display that i did a number of years ago and I, I just love that and so doing something i would like to do an archaeological dig as a diorama oh wow for some reason i love skulls i love that idea i wanted to do uh carter's um you know discovery uh-huh. of Tutankhamun. i've seen a few movies on carter and none of have really captured it for me because that was such a crazy time and and the whole story about discovering Tutankhamun and the valley of kings i'd love to do a diorama on that that to me is very interesting
1: there's, there's a, a charity in the UK called Waterloo Uncovered, and they go to Belgium, France, Germany, and dig oh, up Oh, yeah, tanks.
2: yeah, I have seen it.
1: And they try and recover them, and that would mm-hmm. be an interesting uh, an interesting diary. I mean, obviously, sometimes they turn into human graves, you know, where they'll find a resting place, so they have to be very, very right. careful. But it's fascinating to be able to recover something that's been lost for so long, there might be something in that as well, Yeah. archaeologically. You can get Mark II tanks, for instance, you know, <laughs> off the shelf. The work I do with Models for Heroes, that some veterans were going off to, uh, I think it was Belgium, and they were going to dig up a Mark II. And so we got Mark II kits from Emhar, I think it was, and built the model of the tank that they were going to be digging no up.
2: No kidding, yeah.
1: So they recognize, you know, a... A tank track, or they would recognize something off the top, and they would know which part. And if they didn't get to dig anything up, at least they got the (laughs) model they they made back in the UK. But what actually happened was they they discovered human remains pretty early on, so the whole place had to be sort of shut, right? And and they had to wait for the authorities. I've got a couple of books
2: on that exact too, and where they have recovered uh, old warbirds. You know, same kind of thing, you know, you you get out there, you find it. And then when you find it, then sometimes they'll find people in the cockpits and things of that nature. But I, I think a fascinating thing and, and a story that should be told, you know, we're here trying to relay something and we're, we're we're building our models because they speak to us particularly. But what is that message that I'm putting out or you're trying to put out to somebody? And I think by doing a diorama, I think you're able to communicate that story whatever Mm. your story or connection to that model is you can do that you know you can do that with a diorama and i think you can do that better than just building the model itself so for me it's Mm. it's really about trying to tell those stories and 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 trying to communicate with people uh ideas i have about stuff
1: well it's it's history Mm -hmm. as well it's not just story it's it's um tales of things that actually happened
0: is there a a particular period that is your thing or is there something out there that you haven't tackled that you would love to tackle?
2: Not really. If, if something grabs my fancy, it, it could start with the model or it could even start with a story. And then I look for a model to tell that story. It's just, it's uh-huh. really about what grabs it. I, I think that I'm working on one right now. It's a world war one uh, trench diorama. Uh-huh. It's, it's got a whole story around it and it's quite a large diorama it's going to be one of the larger ones I've done but after that I'm going to probably want to do just something very simple and that's how my Uh sci my sci-fi one earlier this year happened after I finished Wolfenstein which was a very large very complex diorama I wanted Mm -hmm. something a little you know they say palette cleanser and and so a little bit of Uh that well I was just going to build the machine in Krieger to to get it done And during Uh the build, I started just getting those ideas. And and it helped me build, I think, a little bit better because the story gives more um, personality to the things that you want to create in your diorama or your model. But that story keeps me focused as I'm building. Uh So as I'm building this little machining Krieger, which was meant to be just get it done because it was part of a group build. I dove into this thing, and it became a very, very enjoyable build, and a very complex story that I still think of today. And and that's a wonderful thing about it. I didn't expect that myself. Those are going to live on well past the build of the diorama, and and definitely a part that keeps me motivated to to keep going.
1: Yeah, was that the uh, triple P? Group build, yeah. So that was
2: the Triple P uh, group build for Nats, the U.S. Nats last year, Mm -hmm. and and I've never been to a Nationals, and I I I don't know if I'll go to one. I I don't travel well uh, because of my back and knees and stuff like that. But um, to do a group build like that and to go, I think that would be fantastic because again, the community and and the folks that you meet and there's there's a lot of uh, joy in there. Uh, I'm not a big competitor. I've only competed once and and i did quite well but it was not the focus i'm doing it because uh i really enjoy doing it
1: Well, enjoying doing the hobby i think is 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 a really important thing because if you're if you're starting out in the hobby you're going to enjoy building that model as much as someone who's professional they're going to enjoy the same things and even if you haven't got the same skills you're going to get the same yeah. fun out of it so if you're enjoying um, yeah, it you're winning absolutely did you get to display your machine and Krieger model at the nets, then, or not. Didn't take
2: it or didn't send it or anything like that. But, it, you know, the community group build thing was quite fun. I, I liked it. The problem being I take so long to build because it's a diorama and everybody's like, well, we're done. And he, you know, I'm just like, well, guys, I haven't even hardly got into it. <laughs> uh, but that's Okay. You yeah. know, it, it's still fun. And and to see everybody that's doing that kind of build with you, I think group builds are fun. I can only do them every once in a while, though, because the length of time yeah. that it takes for me to build. And I've got friends that, you know, finish three models in a month. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. I don't think I'm ever going to have that kind of output.
0: I find it quite funny, actually, that you're saying you won't build a model or three models in a year. But I bet if you add up the figures and the model and all the other bits and pieces you've done in your diorama, it's probably way more over the year than the (laughs) the three models that someone else did. And I think as dioramas, we we forget that.
2: Yeah, because I also do a lot of scratch building. You know, being a woodworker, the scratch building is probably the funnest part. You know, somebody asked me, you know, are these kits? Is there an STL file? You know, can I print these? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, you can't because they're hand-built. I'm not a big 3D fan because I worked in my professional life prior to doing this. I worked for a software company for 23 years. Mm. In doing that, it was all CAD. And I've got a 3D printer. I honestly don't like using it. It's messy. It smells. It's it's hard to clean up the parts. I don't want to go back in and learn another CAD program. I did it for years. Mm if I'm sitting there in a CAD program, because I know it very well and building all that kind of stuff up, there's no restriction. There's no constraint. And I think one of the things that makes a good builder is your ability to work within constraint. I don't have everything I need. I don't have this. I don't have that. So I've got to think out a way to make what I want work. You have to really think it out. And I'm not saying CAD is easy. It's not. It's very difficult. But I enjoy the fact that I'm physically building something more than doing it on the computer. That's just me.
1: I guess it's a different set Uh of challenges. It it really
2: is. You know, I I just get much more joy out of the physical building of stuff. You know, just taking a piece of styrene and making it into something, to me, is the joy. I, I absolutely love it.
1: How much of a a influence is your military career on your model building? I know that, you know, you've done military subjects and sci-fi subjects, but you also focus a lot on world war one and
2: world war two. I was, uh, I was an enlisted person, you know, I was a Sergeant infantry. So when I do a military, uh, diorama, I've, even though there may be officers and things like that, I'm focusing on the mundane. I like to focus the idea or the story on the line soldier, the private, the E-1, the guy that just got there and doesn't know. And, and I think the yeah. reason is, you know, I was in the army and guys did stupid stuff constantly. So don't tell me they wouldn't do it. In World War One. the Crystal Kristallnacht. Well, the, the story goes that they played the football game on Christmas Eve between the Germans and the British and and, and, and the Americans even got into it. The officers wouldn't have lever, never let it happen, uh-huh. right? The, it, would, it would be the enlisted folks that would do that. So I think the military has is, is definitely influenced me that way because I want to tell the story of just the person, uh-huh. not the person making the decisions, not the person looking at a map. I want it to be the guy that's digging the hole going, why am I digging the hole?
1: Or the guy filling the hole in.
2: Exactly. Redig it. (laughs) Yeah.
1: You read a lot of stories.
2: I used to. Um, I like true adventure stories. My absolute favorite writer is Osa Johnson. And that's another diorama I'd love to do. Osa Johnson and her husband, Martin Johnson, were two Americans in the early 1900s that did some of the first film and photo work in Africa. True adventure stories where people have gone into ridiculous situations and then found their way out the other side. Uh, And that was the thing with Osa and and Martin Johnson. They they did that in the early 1900s, real bootstrap way of going about things. A couple of the shelves here in my office back here, these two shelves are all true life adventure stories. Stanley, Livingston, Mungo Park, you know, things like that I think are fascinating. I don't read as much these days because I think I'm too busy, but I used to read a heck of a lot more, and, and those stories still still influence me today.
1: Mm, absolutely. What films then I Love
2: sci-fi. Uh, Battlestar Galactico is one of my favorites ever. Uh, and the new one as well, the new BSG, was just phenomenal. Uh, just absolutely loved it. Uh, Edward James, almost come on, can't beat that guy, but yeah, I love film. I'll rewatch more than I watch new. I'm, I'm that person okay. that doesn't pick up a book because I don't know the author.
0: Is there an element of your dioramas that is to use your terminology? I know I can do it. So why not?
2: When I do a diorama, it's, it's not a, why not so much? Cause I know I can do it. It's the thing that interests me is what I can't do yeah i am a person that if i don't challenge myself um, not happy i have to be backed into a corner and, and i back myself into a corner constantly in my builds you know primarily i, I like building yeah. so for me it's all about technique learning new skills learning new things i'm a tool fanatic i love tools And if this tool will help me do a task Uh, better, even if it wasn't designed to do that task, then that's a beautiful tool. I love trying to challenge myself and figure things out. uh, I really like to just try to make something that I've not made before. Sometimes the harder it seems, the more appealing. Though I can't sometimes dive right into that one yet because I don't have the skill sets or whatever, I'm going to get to that point.
0: Yeah, that's, that's sort of what I was driving at, was that it seemed to, to find a way to back yourself into a corner, to learn a different technique, to to overcome an issue. And if you haven't got that issue within a diorama, it's not going to be as appetizing as it is with that issue, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, it does. It, it really does. I don't know that I would start a diorama mm-hmm. knowing that I'm not going to have a challenge. In other words, I've done this. Uh-huh. For me... Uh, some people are uh, very concentrated on perfection. And I think perfection is is something that we all strive for. I, well, uh-huh. striving for that is is a wonderful thing. I am striving for knowledge. I think I'm pretty right. good at picking up new skills. I can figure stuff out pretty good because I've just done it a lot. That's all. Not, uh. not because I'm predestined for it and over anybody else, just because I'm you know done it and and i think that makes it really fun i love making mistakes grown men fall apart because an antenna has been broken off of their off their tank um and, and and i while i understand that that doesn't affect me at all i'm like well i built it i can repair it it doesn't mean that i don't want it to be the best it can possibly be but i'm not going to hold up because it's not absolutely perfect it's going out the door when i'm happy with it
1: Uh do you follow the same way with your youtube channel then because you do instructional things on there so are you teaching other people or are you kind of teaching yourself at the same time
2: um there are times where I'm trying to relay information but there are all uh, there are other times where I'm saying well I did this it didn't come out what do you think <laughs> <laughs> you know there there's that I I want to be real upfront and the whole the whole YouTube channel thing is is a little weird I'm uh I'm doing quite well now on it uh, mm-hmm. I'm happy with it but it's taken me longer than I think other people because I am not, I have to get in it and drive it you know I have to I have to be in the vehicle to see how it feels I can't read about it watch videos and understand it I have to get it and do it tactically. and so um, for me I, I do put out videos about how to I have in the past the big problem I have is editing long form video You you understand uh-huh. this of course Um, editing long form video for me, it's the same process. I want to tell a story yeah, and I want to communicate an idea and I don't always want to do it verbally. I, I, I I want to do it visually. That's the medium. Mm -hmm. And so I want to take the visuals and tell the story. Um, I used to do my videos, long form videos where I would do it and then I would try to do a voiceover and that worked out. Okay. But you can add an entire day. Uh-huh. At least I can to my editing process uh-huh. just by saying I'm going to do voiceovers. Yeah, it's just remarkable, and this is on an eight minute video, so <laughs> uh, for me, um, it is a process. I I thought initially putting videos together would be a, a chronicling, but I found then it's another form of expression. And so as soon as I figured out it was another form of expression, well, I'm just going to dive into that and make that another form of expression. And hmm. so I really unlike like doing them, but they can take a long time. I'm not doing long form videos as much anymore, though I, I am doing. I'm just not posting as, as often. Yeah. But the shorts have done quite well. Um, so what I do now is I do a short every morning at 10 a.m. Pacific time, U.S., mm-hmm. and that short is of the work I've done the previous night. It's it's helped me stay focused. Folks are responding very well. They're like, wow, I really appreciate this. Uh, mm-hmm. I've got one person that, that has never watched anything but a short and, and a few of those that watch every single day. Yeah. And I get that feedback every single day, and and you know you build those relationships and the community oh. and all the stuff they talk about. It's real. It's tangible. Yeah, that's been a lot of fun. You know, just changing the way I build a little bit. It's 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 brought on new things that I can work with. So it's it's pretty neat. It's interesting you say you you can
1: use it as a tool to reflect to chronologically put down what you've worked on as like a diary. Mm-hmm. Especially like you know, with Thanksgiving and New Year coming up, when we, mm. you know, we'll sit back and we'll think about the year, right? To, to your lives regularly, is that something that you always try to do? Is that part of your building process as well? So you kind of connecting with your people. What's the drive there?
2: I had the the idea that doing the live stream would be fun, a closer connection, you know, the ability yeah. to converse with people and talk and stuff. And it's gone pretty well that way. I am almost at a year. I, I started mm-hmm. doing them in January. It's been really fun. Um, everyone is a train wreck. Um, <laughs> something just completely yeah. goes yeah. off the rails and like all be off screen or whatever happens. <laughs> and for some reason, People like it. Yeah, mm. it doesn't get the viewership and stuff, but the people that are on there, I really enjoy, yeah. and and I like doing it. In the beginning of COVID, I started doing this when when everything shut down, I couldn't do my job anymore, and and so when COVID was up, and they said, okay, everybody, I was like, well, no, I'm good. I'm I'm going to stay doing this. Thanks very much.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that happened a lot, didn't it, around around the world. Uh-huh.
2: To the point of debilitating some systems in the United States, certainly, because they don't have the labor force for it. If if you can find something that you honestly, truly love, and you can find an audience and you're helping other people discover what you love, that right there is, is a massive motivation. Mm. Making connections with people on similar grounds in a positive way, I, I really like that yeah. about... About what's happening online with modeling today?
1: Yeah, it's not about your location anymore. It's not about where you are. No,
2: no, and and the fact that you can share what you've done on a daily basis—that's ridiculous yeah. to me. I literally go up and say, "Guys, I didn't get a lot done last night, but I got these two figures," and then I'll have like fifteen to twenty responses talking about, and that's wonderful. That I mean, you're 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 actually communicating with people. I, I love that. I think it's great
1: talk about modeling as much as you can make
2: models yeah exactly
1: that's why we do, did the podcast isn't it james it's because we could just talk about it we not even
0: making anything we yeah just it is talk for an, over an hour you know? i can't remember um the last model i made if, yeah. to <laughs> <honest>. <laughs> especially in the last few months i i said not that long ago to somebody that model making shouldn't and isn't sat in a room by itself anymore right, right. There isn't a reason for it not to uh, be, a, or for it to be a lonely um, subject anymore. It's 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 opened up an awful lot, and I'm glad of that because that's our biggest problem as as model makers, isn't it? Is that people that don't do model making perceive it? It's a little bit like fishing. You're sat on a bank alone, not no no communication, and it's really fascinating listening to. Um, your thoughts on dioramas, etc., and and your processes, because there's an awful lot there. I'm sitting there going, "Yeah, no, I did that. Yeah, I did that." Um, <laughs> and and even as I'm as you, I was listening to you, um, I'm thinking of people that I've introduced to dioramas who are now doing that. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, that's that's quite yeah. fun. Yeah,
2: and, you know, and that's the other thing when when you can when you can just talk to people with similar interests. I you know I talk to my wife all the time. Oh, well done. And I try to talk to her about model building. And unfortunately, some of it just doesn't stick to the wall, you know, uh, just slides to the floor, leaves a mess. Um, but when I can get on with someone and say, man, I was trying to mount this arm on this guy and and the way that the arm was set, it didn't want to go in the angle that I, and they're just like, yeah, I know. And I did that last month, you know, there's a neat aspect to that. It's like, "Well, what did you do?" You know, yeah. I, well, this is how I did it. And there is a lot of growth in in going online cuz I was that guy, you know, for the the uh last job I had, the 23 years that I worked at the at the software company. Um nobody knew that I was a model builder uh-huh. or a woodworker. Um a couple of guys I I ran an office on the West Coast. It was a company that was based in the middle of the United States and um i ran, ran the west coast office and um they didn't really know that i did those things because it's yeah. kind of a private thing right when you're when you're uh-huh. model building uh without a club without yeah. friends in it you know you're just i like models it's a little bit off uh you know it's not the 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 normal thing i think it's becoming much uh-huh. more popular today i think the internet has helped that uh-huh. But you're just in that room, just like you said, you know, you're just in that room and you're doing your own thing. Well, you can get awfully good doing that for many, many years. You can also see that that skill level um, increase dramatically when you start conversing with other people that do your hobby. It is ridiculous the amount and the ability that I gained after you know becoming a a Mm. member of a model club before getting online before looking at videos the 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 amount i learned over the 50 years that i'd been modeling you know you could compress that into literally a few years because Uh of the mix of input and the experiences that you're sharing with people so I love the fact that that modeling is becoming a little bit more of not in the back room, it's not in the den, it's not on the kitchen table anymore. Oh. It's out there in the world yeah. over the internet. And oh. uh, the sharing of those ideas, techniques and stuff I think is is bringing the entire ability up. The industry is getting better models, well they wouldn't be getting better models oh. out if people weren't buying them. So I think things are on a on a on a a positive turn with modeling whereas when i first started back into it seven or so years ago kind of a flailing uh hobby Uh it's it's kind of you know not out there there's a few people you know it just it just wasn't yeah as well known uh as it is today in my estimation that's just from my perspective i have no no data to back that
0: the amount of times i go into model shops or have been in model shops and no one communicates with each other no one Lately, yeah, you go into model shops and everybody's talking to everybody. Mm. Massive difference. That's wonderful, yeah. Whether that's because I'm more immersed in it, I don't know. Mm. Um, but that's certainly my perception. Maybe it's changed you as a person somewhat. Oh, no, I'll, I'll always be the screwy person I am that eats knob knobs. Well, I hope so. <laughs>
2: that's
1: why we love you. Speaking <laughs> of hobnobs, knobs, what's your favorite biscuit, Bill? And I'm not talking about gravy and biscuits.
2: Um, I can't remember but we do tea my wife and i her family is from the uk oh uh mine's from germany and so yeah we do tea i uh, man i don't know the name of them she does them but it's it's more of a a long almost like a uh two two times the size of a brick and scale <laughs> that wide about that thick they're really quite good um those are my favorites
1: is it shortbread
2: it might be yeah it's a shortbread Ah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Okay. And I
2: can't, and, and then they, they have that one, but they also have other ones that are in a tin that, that there's a, a variety pack of them, but um, I like those the best. And it's a great break in the day. You know, uh, we do it at three 30, but yeah. um, at, at three 30 every day we do tea. And, and that's, that's a really nice break in the afternoon. We kind of get together. She comes into the shop. It's called taking tea, Bill. Oh, okay. There you go.
1: We'll take tea. Is that Tiffin? That's something totally different. Oh, okay. <laughs>
2: I'm going to ask her what that biscuit is.
1: <laughs> Please do. Well, well, I say live. We're not live. Yeah, I, c- I can edit it so that you knew. <laughs> darling, what's that biscuit?
2: What's the two men here that want to know? <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple of guys that are asking about my biscuits. And uh, I think we need to talk about this.
1: Probably guys just want to know about your biscuits, <laughs> darling. about My wife's muffins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bill, um, what things can we tell our listeners? Do you have any anything you want to point our listeners to? Instagram, Facebook, MySpace. Uh, is there a flagpole you want us to look at?
2: <laughs> I have my main YouTube channel is is where I post most information uh, and most of my content, and that is uh, Scale Model Craft. My name, Bill Huffman, is my Facebook, and uh, I post on that quite a bit. Instagram. I also have.
1: Yeah, we'll put them up in the show notes.
2: Wonderful. Thank you. I do have Patreon uh, and the Patreon is fun because one of the other parts of what I do in model building, because, you know, there's no money in model building, but one of the things I do is I do consulting and that I actually make money on. Uh. And so I will consult with people that are looking at building a diorama that aren't quite sure about how to go about it, the planning of it, the setting up, you know, what do you do? And I just take them through that part of it. And it's really fun because I get so invested in their idea. After the consult, I'm calling them back. And I'm saying, oh, and here's another idea. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's really fun. That's That's really exciting because they may come into it, with a completely different idea, and then to go in and explore that and find a way for them to build it. I work with them through building it. And I work with them all that. And it's all virtual. It's all online. So it's really convenient. Mm. Typically, it's like the launching pad. After I've worked with them and stuff for maybe a couple of times, boy, they're just going off. And, and, And that's the greatest part. You you know how yeah. to get to the starting line. That's all you need, and uh, and that's a lot of fun. Mm. I I I enjoy that. I charge for that kind of stuff, but I'll tell you, I get a heck of a lot out of it. I think it's a confidence thing. Yeah. And
1: people are scared of breaking it, breaking a kit, or yeah, doing it wrong, or painting it the wrong color, being found out that they can't do something. Yeah, it's okay to make mistakes all the time, yep. and that's how we learn. T- teaching people that is is essential.
0: Mm.
2: You know, the, my, my most difficult people are the people that are most highly achieved. Yeah. They have an idea that, just like you said, they don't want to necessarily start it until they know they can do it right. Uh, yes. You know, yeah. they have that confidence that they can get to the other side of it. And it's going to be just what they want. So they don't start it. That's the biggest barrier I find. Or or people that don't have that kind of personality, they're just, like, oh, sure, let's just do it. You know, and they, they, they go into it. And I don't know which one comes out better in the end, frankly, but I think that, you know, working with those two different uh, personalities, you get a little bit of an idea of how how to approach it and how to broach some of these subjects that are so scary for folks, you know, Uh there are things that are scary. People that are good at starting stuff are not necessarily great at finishing stuff. People that are really good at accomplishing things aren't great at starting stuff. So you have to kind of break down those walls and you work with folks and and, and help them get beyond those things. And once they do, it was kind of like me when I when I saw Andy's hobby headquarters, it's just it's the launching pad, and literally things just picks up and things accelerate and it goes so quick to see what they do after the fact.
1: Right, releasing your dove yeah. to find out which way it flies.
2: Yeah, exactly,
1: and not straight into the yeah. floor or get caught by an eagle. Or...
2: <laughs> yeah, nose dive from the palm. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, thank you very much, Bill, for your time. Thank you very much for providing the content that you do for the hobby. You know, thank you for promoting it and. Oh. and shouting about it and singing about it and waving that flag from the top of your lovely workshop well thank you it's great to talk to someone who's as interested in model making and can talk about model making as much as we can model make it's all
0: about just having a conversation oh very nice
2: very good pick. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I, you know, I've I've enjoyed listening to you, and and it's great to meet you guys finally. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to just you know talk models. I could do it all day because I, I just get so excited about it. Thank you so much, mate. Thank, you, buddy. Thank you very very much. I really appreciate you guys having me on. Sky model crafts
0: should be a mainstay in your subscriber modeling content his knowledge is extensive and he's always a joy to watch bill is also a storyteller spinning tales with his dioramas
1: which are laid bare to see on his youtube channel
0: next time we'll just be making conversation about other subjects relating to this daft hobby of ours
1: You have been just listening to Just Making Conversation with James Giffins and me, Malcolm
0: Childs. Follow us on Facebook where we post photos, updates and other nonsense from time to time. Mm, not really.
1: Find us on Spotify, Amazon Music, iTunes, Google Podcasts, YouTube, YouPorn and all the others.
0: Let us know what you're just making and what your thoughts are on the conversation in this episode. Do you think we should get an OnlyFans account?
1: I think it's free. I think. Look into it. Oh.
0: Not now. Oh, okay then. <laughs> Thank you to the following supporters from paypal.me forward slash podcast JMC or patreon.com. Just make a conversation. <clears throat>
1: Dan Nuffel, Paul Gallagher, Chris McLean, Philippe Lefrenier, Johan Frentzen, Mike Beepstucker, Mike Shelley, Mark Harriet, Elliot Capretti, Adam Kieran, Drussel Legume, Craig Nichols, Elliot Robert Lane, Dean, Novana, Bill Volker, Callum, Michael Sheen's Podcast, Paint All the Minis, Peter, Brad Warren, Tim, Black Rifle, John, Jr., Chuck, Mark, Hawaii, Simon the Jersey Gent, Steve, Lee, Costas, Mark, Rain, Neil Twice, Mike, Robert, Andrew, Drew, John, Mike, Jeff, Richard, Lynn,
0: Gordon, and seven others.
1: You're dizzy now. Mm
0: uh-huh. hmm do lie down. If you do show your support, leave your name so we can print it on the Roll of Honour on the tail of the next episode. Goodbye, all. Bye.